Lesson 1 for March 28 to April 3, The Uniqueness of the Bible, read by Dr. Percy Harold. Sabbath afternoon, March 28. Before we start, however, let's read the introduction by the two authors of this quarter's series of lessons. The first is Frank M. Hazel, PhD, and he's an Associate Director of the Biblical Research Institute at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. His cousin, Michael G. Hazel, PhD, is Professor of Religion at Southern Adventist University and Director of the Institute of Archaeology and the Lynn H. Wood Archaeological Museum. Here they are, reading the introduction, How to Interpret Scripture. As Seventh-day Adventists, we are Protestants, which means that we believe in sola scriptura, the Bible alone as the sole authoritative foundation of our faith and doctrines. This is especially relevant in the last days when, as Ellen G. White said, God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms, the Great Controversy, page 595. Of course, we are not unique among Protestants in claiming the Bible and the Bible alone as the foundation of our faith, even though many who make that claim believe in such things as Sunday, as the New Testament replacement for the Seventh-day Sabbath, the immortality of the soul, eternal torment in hell for the lost, and even a secret rapture in which Jesus quietly and surreptitiously returns to the earth and snatches away the saved while everyone else is left wondering how those people could have disappeared. In other words, just having the Bible and claiming to believe is one thing, as important as that is, but as the proliferation of false doctrines, all supposedly derived from Scripture, reveals we need to know how to interpret the Bible correctly as well. Hence the subject of the Adult Bible School Study Guide for this quarter, How to Interpret Scripture. In it, we begin with the assumption that Scripture is the Word of God, is the infallible revelation of His will, and the standard of character, the test of experience, the authoritative revealer of doctrines, and the trustworthy record of God's acts in history. Seventh-day Adventists believe, second edition, page 11. In short, Scripture is the foundational source of the truths that we believe and proclaim to the world, or as the Bible itself says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, Second Timothy 3.16. All Scripture, of course, means all Scripture even the scriptures that we might not like, that might step on our toes, and that, to use contemporary parlance, might not be politically correct. From this starting point, then, we will examine how the Bible teaches us to interpret itself. That is, rather than first going to such extra-biblical sources as science, philosophy, and history, which, if used correctly, can be a blessing, we will seek to uncover from within the biblical texts, the tools that reveal the great truth found in its sacred pages. We are told that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. And we believe that among the things these holy men of God spoke are keys to helping us interpret the word of God. For instance, How did Paul or the Gospel writers interpret the Old Testament? If what they wrote was inspired by God, then certainly how they read and interpret the Scriptures could be central to helping us learn to do the same as well. And how did Jesus himself use and interpret Scripture? We won't find a better example on how to read the Bible than from Jesus. At the same time, We will explore our own presuppositions and reasoning about context, language, culture, and history, and how they each impact the way we read and understand the Word of God. How are we to interpret the parables, prophecies, sacred history, admonitions, songs of praise, prophetic visions and dreams, 
the whole spectrum of inspired writing found in the scriptures? All these questions and more will be explored this quarter because, as doctrines such as eternal torment in hell or Sunday sacredness show, believing in the Bible itself isn't enough. We must learn how to interpret it as well. My name is Frank M. Hazel, Ph.D. I'm an Associate Director of the Biblical Research Institute, the BRI, at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. And my name is Michael G. Hazel, Ph.D. I'm a Professor of Religion at Southern Adventist University, Director of the Institute of Archaeology and the Lynn H. Wood Archaeological Museum. So now, before we begin the lesson, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It means so much to us. It's the reason that each week we come to these lessons to learn more about what you want for us, what you have done for us, and what you are like. And we trust that as we open your word this week, we may understand more of of why we have the word of God, that we may understand more how to use it, to, to read it, to understand what it means. We pray that in doing so, we may continue to see the lovely Jesus as the source of our salvation, the one who promises to come back, to take us with him, to be with him. As we open your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide each heart who is listening, who is reading, that your name may be glorified. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Let's read that again. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Composed of 66 books and written over 1,500 years on three continents, Africa, Asia and Europe, by more than 40 authors, the Bible is unique. There is no other book, sacred or religious, like it. And no wonder. After all, it is the Word of God. There are more than 24,600 extant New Testament manuscripts from the first four centuries after Christ. Of Plato's original manuscripts, there are seven, Herodotus, eight, and Homer's Iliad, slightly more than 263 surviving copies. Hence, we have powerful confirming evidence of the integrity of the New Testament text. The Bible was the first book known to be translated, the first book in the West published on the printing press, and the first book to be so widely distributed in so many languages that can be read by 95% of the Earth's population today. The Bible also is unique in its content and message, which focuses on God's redemptive acts in history. That history is intertwined with prophecy, as it foretells the future of God's plans and his eternal kingdom. It is the living word of God, because the same Spirit of God, through which Scripture was inspired, is promised to believers today to guide us into all truth as we study the Word of God. Second Timothy 3 verse 16 and 17 reads, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And John 14, verses 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And John 15, verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, The Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And John 16, verse 13. However, when he, the Spirit of Truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. 
Sunday, March 29, The Living Word of God The most important words spoken are often the last words a person utters. Moses, the writer of the first five foundational books of the Bible, sings a song to the people just before his death. It's recorded in Deuteronomy 31, verses 30, to chapter 32, verse 43. I'm going to read it for you now. It says in verse 30 of Deuteronomy 21, Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves, they are not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation, do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who brought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old, consider the years of your generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples, according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the place of his inheritance." He found him in a desert land, and in the wasteland a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its youngs, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride on the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock, and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle, and milk of the flock with fat of lambs, and rams of the breed of Bashan, and goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine the blood of the grapes. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese." Then he forsook God who made him, and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals, that your father did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, who are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger, and shall burn to the lowest hell. I shall consume the earth with her incense, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of the serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within. For the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of grey hairs, I would have said, I will dash them in pieces, I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is nigh, and it is not the Lord who has done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. 
How could one chase a thousand, and two put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of serpents, and the cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants, when he sees that their power is gone, and there is no one remaining bond or free. He will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise and help you, and be your refuge." Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill, and I make alive, I wound, and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven, and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittered sword, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies, and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, with the blood of the slain and the captives, from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Question, read Deuteronomy 32, verses 45 to 47. How does Moses describe the word of God and its power in the lives of the Hebrews on the verge of entering the promised land? Deuteronomy 32, beginning at verse 45. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the works of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life, and by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Among the last words of Moses is a strong exhortation. By setting their hearts on the words that God has spoken to them through him, Moses wanted to stress to the people that their focus should remain on God and his will for their lives. By teaching these words to their children, each generation would pass on God's covenant plan of salvation. Notice that they were not to pick and choose which words, but were to observe or obey all the words of this law. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 46. At the end of the earth's history, God will have a people who remain faithful to all of Scripture, which means keeping the commandments of God and having the faith of Jesus, as we read in Revelation 14.12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. These people will remain faithful to the teaching of the Bible, for it is not only ensures a richer life on earth, but an eternal destiny in the home Jesus prepares for us, which we know so well from John 14, verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Question. Read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 and verse 14, and John 14, verse 6. What do these texts teach us about Jesus and eternal life? How does the word made flesh relate to the revelation and inspiration of Scripture.
John 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the focus and aim of all Scripture. His coming in the flesh as the Messiah was a fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies. Because he lived, died, and lives again, we have not only the Scriptures confirmed, but even better, the great promise of eternal life in a whole new existence. And so to finish today, Read again Deuteronomy 32, verse 47. For it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life, and by this word you shall prolong your days in the land when you cross over the Jordan to possess. How have you experienced for yourself the truth about how obedience to God's word is not a vain thing for you? Why is faith in God and obedience to his word never in vain? Monday, March 20 who wrote the Bible, and where? The variety of authors, their locations and their background provide a unique testimony that God works to communicate history and his message to people as culturally diverse as its intended audience. Question, what do the following texts tell us about the biblical writers and their backgrounds? First of all, Exodus 2, verse 10, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. And Amos, chapter 7, verse 14, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. And Jeremiah 1 Verses 1 to 6. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the king of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Joash, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. And Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. 
Then, Matthew 9, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Then, Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 to 6, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. And Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Bible was written by people from many different kinds of backgrounds and in various circumstances. Some were writing from palaces, others from prisons, some in exile, and still others during their missionary journeys to share the gospel. These men had different education and occupations. Some, like Moses, were destined to be kings or, like Daniel, to serve in high positions. Others were simple shepherds. Some were very young, and others quite old. Despite these differences, they all had one thing in common. They were called by God and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write messages for His people, no matter when or where they lived. Also, some of the writers were eyewitnesses to the events they recounted. Others made careful personal investigation of events or careful use of existing documents, as we read in Joshua chapter 10, verse 13. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And Luke 1, verses 1 to 3. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. But all parts of the Bible are inspired, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is the reason why Paul states that whatever was written was written for our instruction so that through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. The God who created human language enables chosen people to communicate inspired thought in a trustworthy and reliable manner in human words. As Ellen White writes in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 26, God has been pleased to communicate his truth to the world by human agencies, and he himself, by his Holy Spirit, qualified men and enabled them to do his work. He guided the mind in the selection of what to speak and what to write. The treasure was entrusted to earthen vessels, yet it is, nonetheless, from heaven. End of quote. And so to finish today, there were so many different writers in so many different contexts, and yet the same God is revealed by them all. How does this amazing truth help confirm for us the veracity of God's Word?
Tuesday, March 31, The Bible as Prophecy The Bible is unique among other known religious works because up to 30% of its content comprises of prophecies and prophetic literature. The integration of prophecy and its fulfilment in time is central to the biblical worldview. For the God who acts in history also knows the future and has revealed it to his prophets, as we read in Amos 3, 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. The Bible is not only the living word or the historical word, it is the prophetic word. Question, how do the following texts reveal the details of the coming Messiah? Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall arouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. And Psalm 22, verses 12 to 18. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing... They cast lots. Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 7, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week... He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And Micah 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. There are at least 65 direct messianic predictions in the Old Testament. Many more if we add typology as well. Typology is the study of how Old Testament rituals, such as the sacrifices, were many prophecies of Jesus. These prophecies relate to such specific details as the scepter shall not depart from Judah in Genesis 49.10, that he would be born in Bethlehem in Judah, as we read before in Micah 5.2, that he would be despised and rejected of men, beaten, falsely accused, yet not open his mouth to defend himself in Isaiah 53 verses 3 to 7, that his hands and feet would be pierced, and that they would divide his clothes among them, as we read in Psalm 22 verses 12 to 8. The fact that these prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled with such precision in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus testifies to their divine inspiration and revelation. It also indicates that Jesus was who he claimed and others claimed him to be. Jesus followed the prophets of old in predicting his death and resurrection, the fall of Jerusalem and his second coming. In Luke chapter 9, verses 21 to 22, And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third day. And Matthew seventeen twenty two and 23. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And his second coming, John 14, verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Thus the incarnation, death and resurrection are predicted by the Bible, and their fulfilment ensures its reliability. So, to finish today. What are all the reasons you can think of for your belief in Jesus and his death for us? Share them in class on Sabbath and in class ask the question, why is the evidence so compelling? Wednesday, April 1. The Bible as History. The Bible is unique when compared to other holy books because it is constituted in history. 
This means that the Bible is not merely the philosophical thoughts of a human being, like Confucius or Buddha, but it records God's act in history as they progress toward a specific goal. In the case of the Bible, these goals are 1. the promise of a Messiah, and 2. the second coming of Jesus. This progression is unique to the Judeo-Christian faith. In contrast to the cyclical view of many other world religions, from ancient Egypt to modern Eastern religions. Question: Read 1 Corinthians 15:3 to 5 and verses 51 to 55, Romans 8:11 and 1 Thessalonians 4:14. 4, what do these passages teach us about not only the historical truth of Christ's resurrection, but also? what it means for us personally. First of all, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. In the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 55. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Romans 8 verse 11 But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The testimony of the four Gospels and Paul is that Jesus died was buried, bodily rose from the dead, and appeared to various human beings. This is corroborated by eyewitnesses who laid him in the tomb and later saw it empty. Witnesses touched Jesus and he ate with them. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and other women saw him as the resurrected Christ. The disciples spoke with him on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appeared to them For the Great Commission, Paul writes that if the witness of Scripture is rejected, then our preaching and faith are in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14. Other translations say null and void or useless. The disciples state, it is true, the Lord has risen in Luke 24.34. The Greek term ontos refers to something that actually took place. It is translated really, surely, or indeed. The disciples testify that the Lord is risen indeed. Christ also is represented as the firstfruits in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 of all those who died. Let's read that. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The historical fact that Christ bodily rose from the dead and lives today is the guarantee that they too will be raised as he was raised. All the righteous will be made alive in Christ, it says in 1 Corinthians 15.22. The term here implies a future act of creation when those who belong to Christ or remain loyal to him will be raised at his coming, 1 Corinthians 15.23, and at the last trumpet, 1 Corinthians 15.52. So to finish today. 
Why is the promise of the resurrection so central to our faith, especially since we understand that the dead are asleep? Without it, why is our faith indeed in vain? Thursday, April 2. The Transforming Power of the Word. Question. Read 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 3 to 20. What causes King Josiah to tear his clothes? How does his discovery change not only him, but also the entire nation of Judah? Now it came to pass in the eighteenth year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshalam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work, to repair the damages of the house, to the carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand, because they deal faithfully." Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, and have delivered into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah the servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of his book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ackerman, Akbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Hashas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. Then she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord." Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. In 621 BC, when Josiah was about 25 years old, Hilkiah the priest the high priest, discovered the book of the law, which may have been the first five books of Moses, or specifically the book of Deuteronomy. 
during the reign of his father Amon and his most wicked grandfather Manasseh, this scroll had been lost in the midst of the worship of Baal, Asherah, and all the host of heaven, as it says in Second Kings 21, verses 3 to 9. Let's read that. Second Kings 21, beginning at verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal, and made a wooden image, as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will build my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his son pass through the fire, practised soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gather their fathers. Also, if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. As Josiah hears the conditions of the covenant, he tears his clothes in utter distress, for he realises how far he and his people have come from worshipping the true God. He immediately begins a reformation throughout the land, tearing down the high places and destroying images to foreign gods. When he is finished, there is only one place left to worship in Judah, the Temple of God in Jerusalem. The discovery of the Word of God leads to conviction, repentance, and the power to change. This change begins with Josiah and eventually spreads to the rest of Judah. Question. How does the Bible assure us that it has the power to change our lives and show us the way to salvation? John 16.13 However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And John 17.17 Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Hebrews 4 verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And Romans 12 verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. One of the most powerful testimonies of the power of the Bible is the changed life of a person. It is the word that cuts through human sin and depravity and reveals our true human nature and our need for a saviour. Such a unique book as the Bible, constituted in history, imbued with prophecy, and with the power to transform the life, also must be interpreted in a unique way. It cannot be interpreted like any other book, for the living word of God must be understood in the light of a living Christ, who promised to send his Spirit to lead us into all truth, as it says in John 16.13. The Bible, then, as a revelation of God's truth, must contain its own internal principles of interpretation. These principles can be found in studying how the writers of Scripture used Scripture and were guided by it as they allowed Scripture to interpret itself.
Friday, April 3. Many have died for upholding and remaining faithful to the Word of God. One such man was Dr. Roland Taylor, an English parish minister, who resisted the imposition of the Catholic Mass during the reign of Bloody Mary in his Hadley English parish. After being cast out of the church and derided for his adherence to Scripture, he appealed in person to the Bishop of Winchester, the Lord Chancellor of England. But he had him put into prison, and eventually sent him to the stake. Just before his death in 1555, he spoke these words, "'Good people, I have taught you nothing but God's holy word, and those lessons that I have taken out of God's blessed book, the Holy Bible, I have come here this day to seal it with my blood.'" That's a quote from John Fox, The New Fox's Book of Martyrs, rewritten and updated by Harold J. Chadwick, North Brunswick, New Jersey, Bridge Logos Publishers, 1997, page 193. Dr. Taylor was heard repeating Psalm 51 just before the fire was lit, and he gave up his life. The question we need to ask ourselves now is, Would we remain as faithful to upholding the truths in God's word? Sooner or later, in the final conflict, that test will come. The time to prepare for it, of course, is now. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. In what way does prophecy confirm the Bible's divine origin? How can these fulfilled prophecies affirm us in our faith? 2. In reference to the question at the end of Tuesday's study, why is the evidence for Jesus as the Messiah so powerful? 3. Jesus and the Apostles demonstrated unwavering faith in the trustworthiness and divine authority of Holy Scripture. For example, how many times did Jesus himself refer to the Scriptures and the fact that, often in reference to himself, the Scriptures must be fulfilled? We'll see, for instance, in Matthew 26, verse 54, how then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that is must happen thus? And in verse 56, but all this was done, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And then Mark 14, verse 49, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And Luke 4, 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And John thirteen eighteen, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And John 17, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Thus, if Jesus himself took scripture, in his case, the Old Testament, So seriously, especially in terms of prophecy being fulfilled, what then should our attitude be as well toward the Bible? Inside Story today will be read by Ryan Aitken, a teacher from a Seventh-day Adventist school in Sydney, Australia. Our mission story today comes from Andrew McChesney from the Adventist Mission and is titled A Grain of Prayer and read today by Ryan Aitken. Yolanda Mala learned about the power of prayer from a rice field. Marla found work planting and cultivating rice in a field in her native Philippines after her husband divorced her, leaving her with two baby boys. The landowner gave her permission to work in his field under the condition that she gave half of the harvest to him. The field was located beside a field owned by a relative. Marla worked hard and, when the crop started to grow, 
she saw that the harvest was likely to be of first-class rice. Lord, I don't want any disaster to destroy the rice, she prayed. I need it to feed my children. Two weeks later, a powerful storm struck the region. Marla listened as the wind and the rain pounded against her home. Suddenly she remembered the rice. I can't do anything, Lord, she said. Please remember my prayer. Several days later, after the flooding subsided, she managed to leave her home and travel to the rice field to survey the damage. To her surprise, the rice was brown and ripe. There was no sign that the fierce storm had ever happened. Then Marla looked over at the surrounding fields. They were completely ruined. Even her relative's crop was destroyed. The field's owner was amazed at harvest time. This is the first time that the rice field has produced first-class rice, he said, surprise ringing in his voice. Rats ate the crop of the farmer who borrowed this field to grow rice last year. The rodents had eaten so much of the rice that the previous farmer was able to harvest his entire crop on his own. Marla, however, needed 17 people to help her harvest the rice. Looking at the bountiful crop, Marla remembered her prayer on the night of the storm. A small prayer is a powerful prayer, she said in an interview in Cyprus, where she works as a domestic helper. A small grain of prayer produced a million grains of rice. We couldn't even count the rice. This lesson was read by Dr Percy Harold for Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, Christian Record Services for the Blind, the Sabbath School Department and Hope Channel. You can also listen on the official Sabbath School 4 app and the Apple iTunes app, Sabbath School with Percy Harold. Remember, God is always faithful.